minus nine degrees. <laughs> minus nine degrees. Uh, my name is Randy. I am the executive pastor here at Valley. Dr. Greg, our lead pastor, is in Guatemala. And I promise you, in Guatemala, I don't know what the temperature is, but it's not 9 degrees. It's probably 80, 85, and nice. So Pastor Greg and Pastor Susie down there uh, this weekend, they'll be back this coming week. I'm sure they're having a good time. I'm sure they'll be back fluent in Espanol, right, babe? They're going to learn it all, come back, and just be awesome. But I'm sure they're having an amazing time. Uh, I'm happy to fill in today on uh, this very cold weekend during a very interesting winter, right? We've had, like, the ups and the downs. It's been, like, weird warm and then freezing, freezing, freezing cold. Uh, The only other time that I remember this this winter, it being almost as cold as the minus 9, was Christmas Eve Eve. And it was like three degrees outside. And the reason I remember that is because there was, a, there was a storm that was supposed to come through the area. I mean, obviously, we haven't had much snow. But this one was kind of like it was on the border of, of is it going to hit us? Is it not going to hit us? And uh, it kind of hit some other places. And, and a lot of that passed over us, but it left wind. And even the wind kind of passed over here, but it totally creamed us over at our house in Connecticut. Man, we live in the woods. And, and when you live in the woods... Uh, when it gets windy, it can get a little bit scary, and it started to get, you know, windy about three in the morning. We're like, ah, oh, this is normal, whatever. Four o'clock in the morning, you know, it was whipping so loud, we couldn't sleep. It woke us up. We were listening in the woods, you know, all these trees around. We're listening to trees falling in the woods, kind of around us, big trees, and smash, and then, like, things blowing around, and, and the neighbors, I don't know, trampoline going through the air, and all this stuff. Uh, at one point, we heard, a, I mean, we we're just branches. It was crazy. We heard a, a big tree snap, and it was really close to our house. And what it did was it snapped, and it landed right on our neighbor's house, which is, which is in our, kind of in our backyard there. So it was a big thud, and we were, we were freaked out. We were, we were praying, right? We, were, we, we couldn't see nothing. It was pitch black outside. So you can't even, like, look outside to see, like, what the storm is doing. You're just listening, whipping through the trees, and things breaking. And it was wild. It was wild. So three, uh, three degrees outside. We, of course, lost power. Uh, and when you live in the woods and you don't have a generator, which we learned a lesson, uh, it was cold, right? Three, <laughs> three degrees. We had no heat. We have a well, so then we had no water. Uh, we obviously didn't have electricity. We didn't have internet. And uh, we even lost cell coverage, like the cell tower. It was such a bad kind of wind that the cell tower got knocked out or whatever happened to it. So it was done. There was nothing. You couldn't, like, look at your phone and get any coverage whatsoever. It was just dead. Uh, and that was a new feeling. It was, it was a feeling of of just disconnection. And it, and it lasted, you know, four in the morning. Uh, the, the wind kind of died down a little bit, but you couldn't even check the weather app to be like, hey, is this, is this done or is this going to come back? Or, there's nothing. So five in the morning, six in the morning, light outside, seven in the morning, eight in the morning, no power, three degrees, 10 in the morning, 11 o'clock, 12, one, two. We lost power for 30 hours. So it was like all the areas, all the towns in our area were all out of power too. We ended up getting a generator. I'm out there at two in the morning with a flashlight trying to like see where they were, you know, pouring the gas in there and freezing because it's super cold outside. Man, that feeling of disconnection, like I couldn't even call my mom. My mom lives in Connecticut. I couldn't even call my mom and be like, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you okay over there? Nothing. In the morning, all the trees that were down and the branches and stuff, they were all in the road. You couldn't even really get out of there until they cleared that stuff out of the way later on in the afternoon. It was a feeling of just being Cut off, just like a snap. Cut off, disconnected. All alone out there in the woods at our, at our house. And I was thinking like, man, how did we survive 20 years ago, right? 
uh, I, I'm, I'm middle-aged, I'm getting a little bit older, and I, I remember the days 20 years ago um, before weather apps and GPS. Uh, now kids, maybe younger people don't know this, but back in the day, it was like guys like me and the other Neanderthals, we'd all hi- we'd pile into the car together, and instead of having GPS, we had paper maps. And sometimes there weren't even maps. It was just like, like step-by-step directions that were printed off off some website. And you'd, be, and you'd be driving, and the navigator, hopefully you had a navigator that's telling you, hey, hey, you know, take this turn and take that turn. And if you missed a turn, man, there ain't no recalculating. Siri's not going to come to the rescue and be like, oh, I got you. Take the next left. No, you were done. And if you're stubborn and you're a man and you're like, I'm not stopping for directions. You're going to drive till you hit the ocean. It don't matter. You're done. That was what it was 20 years ago. I don't know how we survived being, being disconnected like that. Uh, and it got me thinking about it. And it's like, it's not like I think them days was better. Because I certainly like my GPS and I like to have a weather app on my fingertips, right? But it got me thinking that this kind of disconnectedness that we experienced during that storm. And the fact that we are always, as a society and as a generation, right? We're always supposedly connected, Right, you got your phone, and, and you can, at 2 in the morning, you might get a text. At 4 in the morning, you might get a phone call. At 6 in the morning, you might get a notification. If you're 50 years old, and you just remember, like, somebody that you went to middle school with, and you're trying to creep on them, see what they're up to 40 years later or whatever, you're like, hey, 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 and you can find them. Constantly connected. Emails from work coming in after work hours, right? Anybody hear me on that? Yeah. Constantly connected. But the interesting thing is that a lot of people even though we're maybe the most connected generation in the history of the world, always got something at your fingertips that can get a hold of you, right? Maybe we're the most connected generation in the history of the world, but why so many people feel so lonely? Is it ironic that maybe the most connected generation in the history of the world also maybe feels like it's the loneliest? And does that play into some of the social media stuff where it just seemed like people on social media are like dying, dying and begging and dying for attention. Please look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'll dance in a certain way. I'll dress in a certain way. I'll, 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 I'll eat mac and cheese out of my kitchen sink. <laughs> True story. I watched that video yesterday. <laughs> it's disgusting for sure. It had 100,000 comments. 100,000 comments. A woman making macaroni and cheese in her kitchen sink. It was eight minutes long. I watched the entire thing. (laughs) But all those likes and all those comments and all that like supposed affirmation that those things bring, is that really, really bringing any connection? If you got a, a loneliness, if you alone, if you got this thing in your heart, is any of that random likes from strangers, is that really going to fill that? Maybe temporarily it might make you feel a little bit better, but I think and I suspect that hole is still going to be there. Maybe that most connected generation is also the loneliness, the loneliest. Yeah. And I started thinking about what about people who are going through storms in their lives that you can't see? What about people that's going through something maybe with their their friend group or their best friend and something happened and what was connected has now broken because of this situation that happened and now you estranged and disconnected from that person. What about family? Family is famous for that. You get together for Christmas every year and then one year you get in a big political fight and then you ain't talking to you and you ain't talking to you and what used to be family is now... 
disconnected. Maybe people in this loneliest generation, as some, I didn't come up with that, some people will be calling it the loneliest generation. Maybe some people are going through storms that you can't see and they feel alone even right now, even in this place. Something in their life has been going on or something happened and they feel like they're walking through this life alone. Loneliness, loneliness is a, is a, is a killer. It is, it, is, it is something that stops us from flourishing as human beings. It's so, such like an iconic danger for humans, this idea of being alone and loneliness, that it's actually the first thing in the Bible, right? We're talking like all the way back in Genesis, right? The first time in the Bible. Let me set it up. God said, let there be light, and it was what? It was good. And then he created the day and the night, and what were they? They were good. And then he created the, the sea and the sky, and they were good, and the land, and that was good, and the animals, and those were good, and the birds, those were good too, and the fish, and those were good. But something was not good. And the first thing that God says was not good was when he saw Adam, and Adam was alone. I know the temptation is going to be to maybe think like this is going to be a message talking about Adam and Eve. This was like a marriage message or something. Like if you're alone, then you got to just find somebody because that's going to solve your problems. <laughs> How many of y'all know that when you find somebody, sometimes it just creates more problems? <laughs> it's true. Sometimes you're in that puppy dog like love phase. You're like, oh, I love you so much. And six months later, you're like, my God, what have I done? This isn't a marriage sermon. This is about connection. This is about something that is a human condition that God says is not good. In this context, we're going to learn about Adam. But keep in mind that Adam had literally no one around him. No friends, no family, no neighbors. According to the story, he had never even seen anybody. No one that looked like him. He was completely, utterly, and uniquely alone. And that for him was not good. We read the story here, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I want you to watch this because this is like one of those kids' church stories where we're like, yeah, yeah, Adam and Eve. But then you start scratching the surface. You're like, oh my gosh, there's so much in here. It's not good for the man to be alone. God says, I'm going to make a helper who is just right for him. Man's alone. I'm going to make a helper that's just right to him. And then we see in the next verse that God brings him a turtle and a fox, and a deer, and a pig, and a chipmunk, right right there. He says, I'm going to make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God forms from the ground all the animals and brings them to Adam to see what he would call them. And Adam's got a, a turtle, right? He needs a helper. There's something, he's alone. He's looking for something that's like him. He's alone, and it's like, oh, that turtle, well, that's, that's cool. I'm going to call that a turtle, and I'm going to call that a fox, and I'm going to call that a deer, and I'm going to call that a pig, and goes through all the animals, all the animals, and names every single animal, but he does not find something that's like him, right? And it's interesting in this story, we'll stay in the slide for a second. In this story, it's kind of the opposite of how normal life works. Like, I'm a father. We have a couple of kids. A lot of you have been kids at one point in time or have had children of your own. And when they're little, you bring them these little books, right? When they're like babies. And you bring them a book. And I'm going to use Todd. Sorry, Todd. And, and you go and you open the book. And you're like, show a picture of a fox. And you say, fox. You show a picture of an eagle. And you say, eagle. And you're teaching your baby. This is what this is called. Eagle, fox, deer, whatever. 
and eventually the baby gets a little bit older and can, can start to use their vocal cords a little bit and starts to articulate things and say back. So then you'll show the picture of the fox and the baby will say, fox. <laughs> right? right? You'll show the picture of the eagle and the child will say, eagle. Right? Like that. But that's not what Father God does in this story. He actually does the opposite. Instead of going to the child, Adam, and saying, this is a fox, this is an eagle, this is a squirrel, this is a chipmunk, he goes to Adam and says, you name them. You name them. Because he had given authority over the earth, dominion over the earth to Adam. And when Adam was given the power to name these things, it was teaching Adam that he had authority over these things. In the same way, when you were born and somebody named you, you were powerless to say, I don't really like the name Randy. I prefer Larry. <laughs> Whoever named me in that moment had authority over me, right? Right? Adam had authority over the animals. And by bringing these animals before him, he was understanding also that he was different than the animals, that there was a difference between him and these animals. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard the lie before. I used to believe this. I used to say this, that mankind is, oh, man, are just, humans are just other animals. We're just, we're, just, we're just beasts, the same as all the other beasts of the earth, right? I was a non-believer. I used to actually say that. I'd be like, yeah, we're just like animals. We're just a little bit smarter. We are not just a little bit smarter than the animals. <laughs> All right? If you look around at what human beings have accomplished, even simple stuff like reading, right? Math, writing, playing music. Yes, a bird can sing, but it doesn't have indoor plumbing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dolphins might be smart. You might be able to teach an orangutan to use a tool to pick a lock. You might be able to show a crow or see a crow out in the wild that like uses a, a rock or a hook and is trying to use a hook as like a little bit of a tool. But there's a big time gap between an animal at its smartest and a human being pretty much at its worst. We have been given dominion and authority. We're given authority over the animals. Humans are way beyond just another animal, just another beast. And after all of this, after all the animals come to Adam and he names every single one, he still hasn't found anything. There's still not that fix for the loneliness that he's experiencing. It goes on. He gave names to all the animals and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. No helper just right for him. What makes it interesting is that, even more interesting is that in a, in a few moments here, one of these animals that Adam has named... One of these animals that Adam is supposed to have authority over, that God has told him, you have authority over these creatures, and this one too, right? All these animals you have authority over. One of these animals that Adam gave a name to is going to come slithering up and is going to have something that he's trying to get Adam to do. He's trying to flip the script upside down. Listen to me, the one you're supposed to have authority over. We'll get to that in just a few moments. So there's no helper here, just right for him. So what does God do? The Lord God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. Eyes closed, deep sleep. And while he's out, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed the opening. 
And the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. And what is his response? This is such a key right here. What is his response? At last. He doesn't even just say it. He exclaims it. At last. Because he has been waiting. What he has been experiencing is not good. And even God said it's not good. And he's been waiting as all the multitude of animals are going through. And he's like, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. This is great. I love this and all. But I have not found one that's like me. When finally it happens and he sleeps in that deep sleep and he wakes up, God presents this thing before him and his response is not, oh, that's cool. It's at last because he's been longing for this thing, something deep inside of him. At last, he exclaims, he says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. It's like me. It's like me. Finally. But let's keep an eye on how long this like at last kind of attitude with his wife <laughs> continues for. He's been waiting so long, exhausted from all these animals being brought before him, not finding anything like him. It's like a love story. If you really kind of read in between the lines here, it's like a love story. At last, at last, here, here it is before me at last. It's crazy. From his side, I want you to catch this. From his side, for his side. From his side, she's created for his side. And the two become one. And there's no division. There's no disunity. There's no disharmony. Nobody's lording their authority over the other one, right? Ha ha, you're made from my ribs. You better listen to me. That's not happening because it's a perfect connection. A perfect connection. He, he, it goes on, it says in a 23 here, she will be called woman. Who is saying this? Is it the Lord? No, it's Adam. So we see here Adam actually names woman. He's named all the animals. Now he names her woman. And interesting, if you look here again, because she was taken from man. In Hebrew, up until this point in Genesis, he's referred to as Adam. So Adam this, Adam that, Adam this, Adam. Even in English, if it's man, before this point, it's Adam. At this point right here is the first time he ever refers to himself as man. So he says, all the animals, gives them names, categorizes them, and he sees her and says, woman, man. And we even have like this as a linguistic fossil, I guess, in English, where you get like female, male, right? Similar, female, male. In Hebrew, it's isha and ish. The play on words is still there because woman came from man, right? It goes on and says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They weren't self-conscious. There was a perfect connection. Perfect connection with each other and I would even say maybe even almost a perfect connection with God because God existed right there with them in that garden. Perfect connection. And they were made one flesh. The two become one flesh. Set over creation and under God. It's about order. 
They're under God and over creation. And they are made and created. And he has his perfect helper. And they feel no shame. Perfect harmony. Onto the scene, as I said before, creeps one of the animals that Adam has already named. He's named it serpent or snake or whatever language he was speaking. Slithery. That's what he named it. And this thing comes up, and it's got some suggestions. It's got some things to say about God. It's got some things to say about the created order that God has made. And this snake comes up to them and says, is God really, like, pretty much really good? Like, how do you trust this guy? How do you trust God? In fact, God is like, what if God is holding out on you? Did he, did he, did he say you're not supposed to eat from that tree? Why would he do that? Does he not want you to be happy? Does he, does he know that if you were to do that, that you'd, uh, you know, you'd be like him? You'd know good from evil? Don't you desire to be like God? And they're listening and listening to that snake that they're supposed to have authority over. They should have just kicked that thing right out of the garden as soon as they started trash-talking God. Or at the very least called their father, Father, what is up with this thing? Listen to what it's saying. But they don't. And maybe that's a lesson for some of us even today is that we're supposed to have authority over the snake. And when it comes slithering around and getting in our ear and telling us lies, we're supposed to be able to say, get lost. We have power in the name of Jesus over the snake. Get lost in Jesus' name. And that thing should be gone. But instead they're like, yeah, tell me more. Tell me more about what God didn't create me to have. Tell me more about the power that I could have if I do this thing. And as they're listening to more what the snake says, and they tell the snake, well, God said that if we ate of that tree, we would die. The snake says, no, man, no way. You won't die. God knows that your eyes are going to be opened. It's going to be awesome as soon as you eat it. And you're going to be like God. Why wouldn't you not want that? You're going to be knowing good and evil. And the crazy thing here, the tragedy is that whose image were they already created in? They already created in God's image. So the serpent is doing a trick. Like I have tricks, sorry. Like I have played tricks on my, my young girls so many times. It's just, it's just a hobby of mine. You can convince them when they're a certain age. Not that I have done anything terrible, but when you can convince them of anything. Anything. I've done it. Well, we've laughed and had a great time. But if you wanted to come up to a, a toddler that has an apple in their hand and is enjoying this apple and you have an onion, you could sell a toddler an onion in exchange for the apple. And the toddler would know no better. Just be like, oh yeah, cool. I'm going to take that. And until he took a bite of that onion, would think that it's made an amazing trade. That's kind of what's happening here. Trading the image of God, what they already have, because the snake has convinced them that God is keeping something from them. And if only they could kind of step out from under God's authority, they could just have anything that they wanted, right? Subverting the order of God. So, of course, they eat that fruit. And at that moment, their eyes are opened. And they suddenly feel shame at their nakedness. So they sow fig leaves for themselves to hide from each other, to hide from themselves, to cover themselves. That perfect connection, that perfect unity that they had had is now broken, is now broken between each other. And more than that, it's not just between each other that something has happened and been broken. Now, 
It's between them and God, where they were once connected with God. Now we see that they're going to be hiding from God. That's been broken as well. Hiding from God. Right? When the cool evening breezes are blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. Instead of running to him, instead of talking to him like they probably have done so many times, they respond by hiding from the Lord God among the trees. Has anybody ever tried to hide from God before? Run from God before? Your boy has. It doesn't work because God like, knows where we are. <laughs> it's impossible to hide from God. They're hiding from the God among the trees. They feel shame. Their eyes have indeed been open, as the serpent suggested, and they actually indeed know good from evil now, as the serpent suggested. However, they understand that what they have done is evil, and now shame has crept in, and now they can't be face-to-face -face with God because they know that they have sinned and messed up, and they are feeling ashamed, and they ran. Their eyes have been opened. And in fact, I would suggest, because when God tells them don't eat of this tree, he says, this is a thing that will happen if you eat of this tree. You'll surely die, death. So right now, after they've eaten from it and they understand that the serpent deceived them, when they're hiding in the trees together and God shows up and says, where are you? You don't think they're thinking about that consequence that they heard that was going to be happening if they took that particular action that they made? I bet they're shaking in their boots. I bet they're shaking in their boots. We were told that if we ate this thing, we're going to die. Because that's what they believed. And God calls to the man and says, where are you? They come forth before him, he says, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Well, Eve told the snake, if we ate, we're going to die. And it's funny because when God puts him on the spot and says, have you done this thing? And she's already said, we're going to die if we eat it. What does Adam do? Adam says, what started is at last, at last, my, my partner, my helper, at last, what I've been waiting for, what I've been exhausted looking for my whole life to fill that loneliness that God said was not good, at last becomes outlast. It was her. It wasn't me. Look, the man replies, it was the woman. It was the woman that you gave me. It's the blame game. He points straight at the woman, it was her. At last becomes outlast. He's more than happy now that two that have become one, he's more than happy now to let him go back to two. It was the woman you gave me. And not only was it the woman, it was the woman that you gave me, blaming God as well. Blaming everybody but himself. Ain't no responsibility in this story. Nobody taking responsibility. And the Lord looks and asks the woman and says, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. It was the serpent. That's why I ate it. And everybody's pointing fingers at all these other directions. But if we read between the lines again, we'll see that something is missing that you would maybe expect 
to happen in a situation like this when you kind of messed up. There's nobody, there's nobody looking for forgiveness. There's nobody taking some ownership of a mistake that they made. Adam and Eve are not even saying anything to each other. Eve is not turning to Adam and saying, babe, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I wanted more than what we had. I'm sorry what we had was not enough. I'm sorry that I listened to that snake. I'm sorry that I encouraged you to eat that too. Babe, forgive me. There's no Adam looking at, looking at his wife, the one that he waited for, the one that he longed for. At last, he exclaimed, there's no, my love. What have I done? I'm sorry. I didn't protect you. I didn't protect us. I didn't put God first. I didn't believe God at his word. And certainly there's not the two of them turning to God, their father, and saying, Father, we've messed up. We're sorry for allowing something to come between us. God, have mercy on us that we listen to a voice that was not from you. We wanted more than what you gave us. We tried to step around your created order. Father, forgive us. Now maybe hindsight's 2020, but we know, many of us know that God is such a forgiving God, such a graceful, merciful, amazing God. I have done some ridiculous things in my life that I am glad that God has just said, all right, I let it go. I've been able to go to God and ask him to forgiveness for, for forgiveness for so many things. Who knows what would have happened if they turned to God and they said that they asked God for forgiveness, but there's no looking for forgiveness. There's no apologies. There's no I'm sorry. And there's certainly not any taking responsibility because when they bit that fruit, in a way that snake bit them and that venom traveled up into their hearts and now they are hard-hearted and cold. Something has changed in their relationship and their connection both with each other and with God. They have become disconnected. So God, so God in his mercy acts mercifully by disconnecting them from the garden. They become disconnected from God, their father, through sin, and their father disconnects them from the garden. Exiled, they enter into a different world, a world now under the power and authority of the snake. And we see this actually to this day because you know that the world is full of wars and rumors of wars and violence and agony and suffering and death and manipulation and lies and anger and all these things. And they're exiled into that world now from the garden. Now everything is under the power and the authority of the snake. And God sends them out, sends them out in his mercy in a way. But he gives them a promise that they're supposed to take with them on the way out. And it's not just a promise for them, it's a promise for all generations. God, when he speaks to the serpent, and there's actually a, a promise that he gives to the serpent, which is weird, because it applies to all of them. 
God tells the serpent, because of this, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice here the snakes have an offspring. Have you ever met a snakeling? It's a real question. Have you ever met a snakeling in your life? Because when Adam and Eve have children, they got two of them, and it's a pretty famous story. You got Cain who kills his brother, right? The snakeling and the child of the woman, the children of the woman. So the snake has offspring, the woman has offspring. And then it goes to singular here. It says he, to the snake, he is going to strike your head. A lot of translations say he's going to crush your head and you will strike his heel. The promise for them to take out into that exile is a promise that someday God is going to restore order and make everything right. And we see a lot of people have believed that this was a prophecy, even all the way back there in Genesis when it was written, a prophecy about the Messiah and all the Jewish people for all of their time were hoping for the day when the Messiah would come and crush the head of the snake and be the snake crusher and deliver his people. And we know Jesus, Jesus, the snake crusher, thousands of years later, the Son of God come to this earth and he was healing the broken and he was healing the physical ailments. He was undoing the work of the snake. He was bringing light to the darkness. He fulfilled this prophecy. And when he went to that cross, when he took all of our sins to the cross with him, when the snakelings didn't like what he was doing, when he was healing these people and doing these good works over here, when they finally got him up on that cross and he was there taking the sin of the world on himself, when the snake, if a snake bites you, a lot of times, sometimes it can be venomous. This is the most venomous snake that's ever existed. And it's going to strike the heel. Jesus was, in a way, bit by that snake when he crushed the head. Because we know now that all powers, all authorities are under the feet of Jesus Christ. Death itself has been defeated. We sang that this morning. Death couldn't hold you down. You are the risen king. You're seated in majesty. That's all a play in the idea that God on the cross crushed the head of the snake and he took a wound. Now, interesting thing is that we have very few evidences of people who have been crucified. Like, you have all this archaeological stuff, and people are always digging and going through all this stuff, and it's been very rare. They've only found, like, one or two evidences of someone who's actually been crucified. They found a bone box, which is how the Hebrews used to bury their people, bone box. And this was, like, in the 60s. It wasn't that long ago. And on the outside it said, it was, it was like, the guy's name was like Johannan or something. And when they opened it up, they found his bones in there. And they found something interesting. Evidence that this man had been crucified. And they traced it back to being around the same time as Jesus. And they know that this man was crucified because the nail was still in him. And where was the nail? The nail is actually still in his heel. 
that's still in his heel. That's where they nailed him to the cross. So in Genesis, that prophecy that one was going to come, the offspring of the woman is going to crush the snake and take a wound, take a wound, take a wound in the heel. When they pierced his feet, whether it was from the side or wherever, he took that wound. Now, a lot of people do say that's the first prophecy of Jesus. I don't think that's the first prophecy of Jesus. That story about Adam going into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, God created somebody from his side for his side, and then he woke up and was presented with his wife. When Jesus went to the cross and breathed his last and closed his eyes into the sleep of death, God the Father created from his broken body even the body that had been pierced in the side by the spear of the centurion. God created from his brokenness, from the death there, from his body while he slept, quote-unquote slept, and brought about when he rose from the dead, his bride face-to-face with him. And that bride is the bride of Christ, that is the church. And all who belong to Jesus have become one flesh with Jesus. You see, the Genesis, Genesis, the understanding Genesis, you pass through Genesis to understand the rest of the Bible, and you actually pass through Genesis to understand the world outside of the pages of the Bible. But the key to understanding Genesis is Jesus Christ. And when you turn that key and you understand that even way back there was pointing to Jesus, the snake crusher, the bridegroom of the bride, the one with whom the lover of our soul, that changes everything. You think that's a stretch? John the Baptist said it like this. They were asking him, are you the Messiah? Because he was doing amazing things. And crowds were coming to him. And they're like, wow, this is so crazy. Maybe this guy's the Messiah. And they went up to them, are you the Messiah? He says, no. I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. He's like, I'm just the best man. I'm the bridegroom's friend. I'm a friend of the groom. I'm just happy to see and hear him in his vows. Christ being presented as the groom, the people of God being presented as the bride. If that's not clear enough, we can go to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her unto death to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, the word of God, and to present her to himself as a radiant church full of sin and stain and brokenness and wounds and unforgiveness and all these things. And he's got this rat-a-tat bride. No. He presents to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He chooses to see beyond our mistakes. He chooses forgiveness and grace and mercy and love 
And sometimes it's just us. If we're hiding, if we're feeling shame because of something we've been up to, something we've done, sometimes all it takes is turning back and saying, Lord, I messed up. Heal me, God. Help me, Lord. Forgive me, God. Bring back this feeling of connection and unity, Lord. All I desire is to be with you. And God, in his amazing mercy, is full of forgiveness. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He goes on, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. It goes on. He who loves his wife loves himself. Nobody's ever hated their own body. He says, if you're hungry, if your body's hungry, you're going to feed it, right? If your body's wounded, you're going to take care of your body, right? In the same way, Jesus is saying, if we are together, if you are a part of me, if you are wounded, if you are hurting, if you are alone, desires to bring that healing that only he can bring. Another person is not going to be able to heal that loneliness. We are members of his body. That quotes again from Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And if we listen, we incline our ear to that scripture. Jesus left his father in heaven and came to this earth in search of his bride to reconnect. If we incline our ear to that scripture, Jesus left his earthly mother Remember, she didn't understand it first, and he was like, I got to be about my father's business. And united with his bride, and him and his church become one flesh. And we might not feel like that connected to God all the time, but if you have Christ in you, first of all, you have that connection whether you feel like it or not. Second of all, there's that day where that bridegroom's coming back and the Bible says he's coming with the clouds and everybody's going to see him and he's going to call his bride to himself even if you've been dead he's going to raise and rejuvenate he's going to heal he's going to wipe every tear and be united with his bride in perfect connection with no death and no suffering and eternal joy and gladness that we can't even comprehend. Paul says that's a profound mystery, but he's talking about Christ and the church, even our very relationships, those of us who are married and anyone who has ever been married, whether we realize it or not, it's a symbol that's a foreshadowing. It's even a prophecy, if you will, of man and woman married and committed forever. Christ and his church married and committed forever. 
never to leave or forsake us. Now, we may have named the animals Someone might have named us, and they did. Randy or Andrea, or Timothy or Robert or Julia, whatever your name is. Someone could have named you. Someone did name you. They could have named you something that is beyond just a name. They could have called you something and put a label on you and said, You're stupid, Randy. You're ugly. You're worthless. You're never going to be amounting to anything. They could have put names on you like that, but God has a name for you that goes beyond your earthly name, way beyond anything anyone has ever called you. And that name that Christ has for you, that new name when we receive him, has a name that comes from someone who will never leave or forsake us, promises that brings healing when we're hurting, that feeds us when we're hungry, provides for us when we don't even see a way out. He provides the way out. And that name that Christ gives you is beloved. Beloved. If you need connection today with the one who will never let you go, never call you, never name you any terrible names, stupid or worthless, I urge you to connect with the source, God himself. Jesus is willing and able. It don't matter what you've done, man, and it don't matter what you've done. Even though you knew him, you could still turn and say, Father, forgive me. Help me get it right this time. I don't want anything to come in between us. Maybe you're going through a storm. Maybe you've been through a storm and you feel cut off, cut off from them family or the friendships or the relationships. What was together is now broken and apart. I urge you to connect and reconnect to the source the one that is beyond any human relationship. No human relationship is going to fix you. That is one of the biggest mistakes human beings make. We think somebody's going to fix us. Ain't nobody can fix you but Jesus Christ. It's beyond simple human relationships. If you're walking through this life alone, be with the lover of your soul, the one who calls you unto him. Put that first and then worry about the other stuff. Father, in that mighty name of Jesus, I just pray for anybody who feels alone, who feels hurt, who feels that they're doing this life by themselves, cut off and disconnected, God. Lord, your word says that you bring the lonely and you put them in families, God. And sometimes that's neighbors, sometimes that's friends, sometimes it's literal family or a relationship. It could be any one of those things, God. But I pray, Lord, 
that you will bring that person and that loneliness first to you and then flow through you all those other good things. You know best what they need. Lord, I pray anybody that's hurting, God, that you will heal, that you will speak to and come alongside, that you will remind that you have not left them or abandoned them even when they feel so alone. God, I'm praying that anybody who's been running away trying to hide from you, God, would turn around and just seek you and say, God, you got me. There ain't nowhere I can hide, nowhere to go. Have mercy, God. Help me. I can't do it myself. Father, only you, the snake crusher, the one who conquered even the grave, God. Conquer these things in us, God, that hold us back from you, Lord. How we would behold you, Lord, face to face, connected perfectly, Lord, with the lover of our soul. In Jesus' name, thank you, God. Amen and amen.